Let's give our attention to God's word this morning from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The word of the Lord. Uh, thank you, John. Good morning. My name is Brandon Lutz. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. Uh, I feel like the bar has been set a little high. Uh, Mr. Dawson, thank you. Uh, let's just bring those expectations down just a little bit. Uh, be gracious with me as we get rolling this morning. Uh, but we're, we're in the middle, or actually we're in the third week of our sermon series uh, on the parables of the kingdom. Um, and now, if, if you don't know, a parable is a short story or a metaphor that Jesus used to teach various uh, things throughout his ministry. Uh, specifically in our sermon series, this fall, we're going to look at all the parables about the kingdom of heaven. And as Drew stated in last week's sermon, um, it's just so easy to, to think that the kingdom of heaven is not coming. It's so easy to think that the kingdom of heaven is not yet here. I mean, aren't things supposed to be better in the kingdom of heaven? If Jesus is king, if Jesus is sitting on his throne in heaven and heaven is in the process of coming down to earth, then why doesn't it seem like that is all true in our world today? Yet we read in the Bible that Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Over 2,000 years ago, he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. Last week, we used the phrase, the already and the not yet. Uh, in seminary, we were taught this phrase to explain this, this in-between time when Jesus has already come, he's already lived, he has died, he has been resurrected, he has ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has ushered in the beginning of the kingdom of heaven, but it's, it is not yet complete because Jesus has not returned as we know and believe, and as he said, he will do. We're in the in-between time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming. There isn't a, a perfect metaphor for it, but it is similar to a couple that has just gotten engaged. The wedding date has been set. A venue is, is being picked. Future living arrangements are being decided upon. But the couple is not yet married. But hopefully they are hopeful and anticipating that day. And hopefully the family is as well. They're not yet one, but they soon will be. And there are things they are doing as they prepare for that day. The scriptures tell, tells us that we are in this in-between time, but the circumstances of our world, they don't seem to indicate this. Another reason we, we doubt the growth of the kingdom of heaven even now is because our expectations of what the kingdom of heaven is are wrong. We have this idea in our heads of how we think the kingdom of heaven should be. And when we look at our world, we know this is not it. When we look at our relationships and how broken they are, we know that this is not it. What are our expectations as citizens of the kingdom of heaven here on earth? But an even better question is why? Why is my expectation of what I think life should be as a citizen of the kingdom so different than how I tend to live my life? The kingdom of heaven has come to earth. Its reign has already begun, but there are still weeds, as we looked at last week. There is still evil. There is sin in us. There is sin around us. 
That is what, what the scriptures teach us. And my prayer this morning is that we will see what our expectation should be and how we are meant to live as citizens of our heavenly home. So if you look at your outline this morning in your worship folder, you can see the three points uh, this morning that we're going to look at. I took the metaphor of the mustard seed uh, becoming a tree and just ran with it. I'm hoping that can be helpful to you, help things stick. So let's begin with the first point, a small start or start small. Now, when you go to uh, a concert, some kind of performance where a band's going to be on stage, how does the band come on stage? When you're at a home football game, what's the entrance like when, when your home team runs out onto the field? You know, in both instances, there's some kind of dramatic entrance. Maybe the lights go off, it gets pitch black. The fog machines start up, the crowd goes silent. No one says a word. And then you hear the first strum of the guitar or the first beat of the drum. Or then you, you see your team run through the banner or come through the fog uh, of, of, onto the field and, and you, the crowd goes wild. It's some big, dramatic entrance. And throughout history, when kings and royalty would go places, they would always make it a, spe a spectacle to see. They would want to display their grandness, their greatness, when the people saw them. I mean, what, what's the saying? You only get one chance to make a first. Oh, man. That was quieter than the first service, and they were here like two hours ago. You only get one chance to make a. There you go. There you go. I know you're awake. That's helpful. Uh, this same... This same big entrance, this same greatness and grandness is what many expected of Jesus when he arrived. The Messiah would come and he would become the king of kings, conquering the Roman Empire of its day, ushering in the, the age of worldly greatness for God's people. Finally, God's people would be great and at the top of the world and on top of everyone else, they would no longer be at the bottom of the totem pole. And when the Messiah comes, the king of kings descends from heaven to earth with all of his might as a baby. Are you kidding me? And this baby isn't born into a royal family. This baby isn't born in a castle, but instead is born of an unknown woman named Mary in an unknown little town of Bethlehem next to animals. This is why the Pharisees demanded some kind of sign from him. This is why John the Baptist questioned, are you really the guy? But this is how the kingdom of heaven begins, and this is how the kingdom of heaven grows. A mustard seed was the smallest of the seeds used in the garden. One commentator said, Our fingers seem far too big to hold such a small, insignificant seed. It's smaller than a popcorn kernel, only a few millimeters in diameter. And this smallest of seeds is what started to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Now, if you or I were, were, were planning the entrance of the kingdom of heaven into this world, this is not how we would draw it up. But this is how God chose to do it. And what is fascinating is this is always how God worked. This is how God has worked from the beginning. Small, insignificant ways, at least according to worldly standards. God chose Abraham, a man without any children who was 100 years old, to be the father of many nations. God chose Moses, a man with a speech impediment, to go into Egypt, the power of its day, and be his voice. In Deuteronomy 7, we read that God chose Israel, the fewest of all the nations. 
God chose David, the youngest and smallest of Jesse's sons, to be the king of Israel. So small, so insignificant, that when Jesse was told to bring all his sons, he left David out in the field. God chose uneducated fishermen to be the pillars of his church. It is always a small, insignificant start when God started something. Things that made people back then scratch their heads and ask, really, God? Why, why, God? That doesn't make any sense to me. But that is exactly how the kingdom of heaven began. It was small, it was unimpressive, and it seemed so insignificant. Just like planting a small mustard seed in the ground. Just like putting a little bit of yeast in a batch of dough. And after you plant the seed or put the yeast in the dough, it is the common care that comes next, which takes us to the second point in the outline. Uh, do any of you have any experience planting a mustard seed? Have you ever tried to grow a mustard seed or a mustard plant? I've, I've grown a few things uh, in my backyard or garden or things like that, but I've never tried to grow a mustard tree. Um, it isn't really something we grow, even our backyard gardens. Um, there's nothing really exciting about it. There's nothing really flashy about it. Um, but what I learned this week is that if you let a mustard seed grow, and if you, let, if you let it just do its natural development, it doesn't turn into a tree. A mustard seed, if left uncared for, will grow into a shrub or a bush. So in order for a mustard seed to become a tree, you have to consistently do the small things in caring for it. You need to prune it every so often. When your new growth starts to happen near the bottom of the main stem, you need to clip it. You have to shape the plant over time in order for it to become a tree. And just like any other plant in the garden, you got to make sure it's getting enough water. You might have to fertilize it at times. You're going to have to check and make sure bugs aren't eating or destroying it in any kind of way. These are the small, ordinary, common things we have to do in order to make a mustard seed grow into a tree. There isn't anything flashy or fancy about it. Yet this is how the kingdom of heaven grows. Through small, ordinary, common things the kingdom of heaven has been growing, is growing, and will continue to grow. But why is that not exciting enough for us? I mean, why even just saying that am I, is my heart struggling that that's not exciting or flashy? So what do we do? We overcomplicate it. We, we want the big thing, and we miss what is right in front of us. We make our expectations way too high, and when we don't hit the mark, we just get more discouraged we were than before we started. I'm, I'm trying to get into the regular habit of some kind of family worship with my children. And for those of you who don't know, I have three children. Their ages are seven, uh, three and a half, and two. So in my head, uh, before I, I start this, before I go into each uh, encounter trying to do this, and I say encounter for that very reason, um, I've got this, this picture that my kids are going to be so like in awe and just in reverent silence over what God is going to do, just that dad is going to read the Bible to them and they're going to hang on every word that I say. So uh, parents, you already probably know the, how this story ends. How well do you think that went? How well do you think that goes? Think that my expectation that I created in my brain unfolded exactly how I wanted it to? Of course not. Avonlea, my uh, two-year-old, every time we go to a page, she's always got to point out the animal. And then she starts mooing at me when she sees the cow in the Bible. Or she'll roar at me when she sees the lion. Uh, Eden, my middle child, is, uh, she can't read. She's three. But she will pretend like she's reading. 
while I'm reading the Bible. So, but she doesn't say words. She just mumbles and babbles. So there's just this slow hum of babble while I'm reading. Carson, my uh, seven-year-old, we've read the Bible uh, through a few times with him uh, already, and he, he's a really good big brother. He has a really uh, big heart for his sisters. And so I'm thinking he's going to love this. He's going to be so excited to be able to read and be a part of reading, this, reading the Bible to his sisters. The entire time, Dad, are we done yet? Can I turn on the TV? I know this story. I know this story already. Can I do something else? Now, if I'm, if I'm just left to myself in, in that situation, if I just let only Brandon and, and just my sin creep out in that, I'm going to get extremely aggravated. I'm going to raise my voice at them, or I'm just going to give up altogether. But the last couple times we've done it, the Holy Spirit has definitely been at work because that has not happened. And again, that has to be God. That ain't me. Uh, we, we read through a couple chapters over the, a couple different times over this past week. Um, and again, all my children, they're just acting like children. They're doing what children do. But I create this expectation in my head that's not realistic of how I expect it to unfold. But the best part of the last couple times I've done it uh, is, is at the end, not only do they want to pray, and again, they're three and two, like their prayers don't make sense, but it's really cute. Um, but they let me pray for them. And it's just such a sweet time where I get to pray uh, that, that they would know God as their father. And, and now it's something that, that's so small and it seems so insignificant. There's nothing, nothing flashy or exciting about it. But it, ve- it may very well be how the Lord is planting seeds in my children. The next illustration might seem a little foolish uh, on my part as I'm one of, the, one of the men trying to help put on this, the marriage retreat in a couple weeks or six weeks from now. I'm very excited about it. I, I really think it's something that a lot of our uh, church family has been asking us to do, but I'm really excited about it. But if any of us attending the marriage conference think and believe that this weekend is going to drastically change your marriage, you got the wrong expectations. If you think that you're going to, after this weekend, your spouse is going to be fixed, it's not going to happen. We're hoping that this will give you tools, that it will start conversations, it'll, if it'll give you tools in your toolbox to go after various parts of your marriage. And you, guess what? You're still going to be just as broken after the marriage retreat too. So your spouse still has got to deal with you after this weekend. The kingdom of heaven, it really does grow in common things that go unnoticed every day. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus spent three years with his disciples, the first church planners, the writers of the New Testament, the pillars of the kingdom of heaven. Now, did Jesus take these 12 men up on a mountaintop for three years in some kind of majestic, holy, heavenly setting? Or did he do everyday life on life discipleship with them? He shared meals with them. He had conversations with them. He prayed with them. He opened the Bible with them. There was nothing extraordinary about how Jesus went about discipling his disciples. He spent time with them doing very common things that so many of us take for granted. In Zechariah 4, we read, To not despise the day of small things. Don't look down on the little things because you might be missing the kingdom of heaven if you do. Tish Warren wrote a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Now, she wrote the book because we live uh, just in an age where, where we overlook the ordinary routine of the day-to-day and how God uses ordinary to accomplish his extraordinary means. She says this in her book. A sign hangs on the wall in the new monastic Christian community house. 
Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole in beautiful, big ways. But what I am slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain, sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small. This is how God transforms and takes root and grows. How would our lives change if we viewed doing the dishes as the very work God has called us to do? What would God do in us and through us if we viewed and did the quiet, repetitive, and ordinary practices of our faith and life? For one, as we're going to see near the end, it would grab the attention of others who would wonder why we're so content. Why are we so joyful over the common, ordinary things? The next generation of the church, uh, college students, high school, middle school students, children uh, right now are, when they, when they graduate from high school and go off to college or go off to whatever's next, whatever God's calling to next in that stage of life, 80% of them are walking away from the faith in the church. It's a sad truth, but it's the reality and truth for us. Many studies have been done to try to figure out um, why are they going away, uh, and, I, and really uh, for us, like what is, for those 20% who do stay connected, what are, what's going on in their lives that keeps them connected to the church? What are some of those common things? And, and you have to hear this, because this is something that the world gets backwards and we get backwards uh, so often. It wasn't lights, fog machines, and loud, crazy worship experiences. It wasn't a, a preacher who talks like this, their generation, who just keeps them hang on every word. It wasn't whether or not a church did this program or that, or that program. It was these two factors for the 20% who stayed connected. It was their parents and their church family who just took the time, spent time staying connected with them, doing the ordinary things of life and faith. Parents and church family who spent time just having small faith conversations, small, just normal, everyday life conversations. Parents who would pray for them, people who would pray for them. Being a faithful children's ministry volunteer matters. Because those children see your face and they know your heart and that's how they get to know you and they stay connected to you. Praying for them, attending their after school activities, reading the Bible with them. Through these small, ordinary, common things, the kingdom of heaven has been growing, is growing, and will continue to grow. And it's going to grow into a great garden, which brings us to the last point in the outline. The smallest of seeds after the common and ordinary care, grows into the largest of all the plants in the garden in our parable. The kingdom of heaven is growing. The kingdom of heaven is growing in size and in influence. Now, if you're like me, that's really hard to see, especially for us as, as Americans living now in a place where Christianity is no longer the majority belief system. It seems like the influence of Christianity, at least in America, is quickly dwindling. But what happens if we take a step even farther back? What happens if we take a, a view of the growth of the kingdom of heaven from a much bigger viewpoint? It started with Jesus. Jesus discipled 12 men. Those 12 men went on to become some of the leaders of the first century church that set the Roman world upside down. We read in Acts and throughout the New Testament that thousands and thousands were coming to faith, even amidst persecution and tribulation. 
the church in Colossians, Paul writes to them uh, in the first chapter, Paul tells the Christians there that the whole world is bearing fruit and growing because of the gospel of Jesus is going forth. So think about this for a moment. Christians were growing influential so much that a couple centuries later, the Roman Empire, the political power that allowed Jesus to be crucified and destroyed Jerusalem, left no stone unturned, made Christianity its religion. And if you look at a map today and see where Christianity started and where it has now been taken, we should be in awe of how God is growing his great garden. And what I find most fascinating about the growth of the great garden is what, that when man tries to stop the growth and, inf and influence of Christianity, it only seems to do the opposite. The places where believers', believers lives are at stake for their faith is where the gospel seems to be most at work. It is incredibly dangerous to be a Christian in many of the northern countries in Africa. Yet Africa had over 50 million people join the faith last year. They professed their faith in Jesus last year alone. About one-fourth of the world's believers live in Africa. And African Christians are now sending missionaries to us in North America. Here's another way to think about the growth and influence of Christianity. According to Pew Research, in 1910, there were 600 million Christians in our world. 1910. In 2011, about 100 years later, their study said there were 2.18 billion Christians in our world. And how did that all start? Jesus, the Son of God, hung on a tree until dead. His body was planted in the ground and his blood covered the soil. The Son of God fell into the earth, died, and remained alone. But because he died, a tree has sprouted and it's been growing. A tree has started to grow and it's been growing. He bursts forth from the ground, defeating sin and death, ushering in the eternal age of the kingdom of heaven. And this tree is growing to such a size that birds are coming and making their nests in its branches. In Revelation 22, the kingdom of heaven is described as the tree of life blossoming, overflowing amounts of fruit, and the leaves of the tree were the, for the healing of the nations. It's for the healings of those outside. The kingdom is not yet what it will be. The kingdom of heaven is still growing. Does that not excite you? Does that encourage you in any kind of way? You know, I don't know about, about you, but definitely encourages my heart because too often I look through it with my own lens and not the lens of Scripture and not the lens of God. Too often my expectations and perspective is not what it should be. And you want to know what else is encouraging? Is that the king of the eternal kingdom wants us to play a part in making all things new. So what's my role in all this? How can I help spread his garden, care for his garden, and play a part in making it great? And as we said earlier, let's start small. Let's start with the, the unimpressive, ordinary, common little things. In Luke 16, 10, we read about, read that, excuse me, in 16, 10, we read that we must first be faithful with the little things. If we can't be faithful with the little things, then how can we be faithful with the big things? The small, common things like reading your Bible, praying, spending time hearing God's voice, and then spending time letting God hear your voice. Then look around and see the people God has placed in your life path. Find ordinary, common ways to love and serve them. What is your friends, or whether it's your friends, your spouse, 
your kids, your family, whoever's in your day-to-day regular community. Just start there. Start there and see what happens. The last thing I want to mention has to do uh, with the end of the mustard seed parable as well as how the yeast works through a batch of dough. Remember how the tree in the garden becomes so big that the birds are attracted to it and make their nests in it? When you use yeast making, uh, making bread or making uh, anything with yeast, you only use a little bit of yeast, but it ends up working through the entire batch of dough. Two things about this. First, we should be doing life in such a way that it attracts those outside of the kingdom towards the kingdom. They should experience us in such a way that makes them wonder about our joy in our day uh, and age where joy just seems to be non-existent. There should be a joy and a contentness in us and about us and just oozing out of us that grabs their attention and makes them wonder. You know, a small example of this would be a lot of us go out to lunch after church or a lot of us will go out to eat at some point in time this week. Take a few seconds, just get to know the name of your waiter or waitress. Talk to them for, for just a little bit as opposed to viewing them as someone who's going to do something for you and then you're, you're done with them. Serve them while they're serving you. Second, our faith should always affect all parts of our lives and all parts of the world. It's so easy for us to kind of compartmentalize our faith and think it's only going to be here, here, and here, as opposed to thinking, no, it's everywhere. It's throughout the entire body, as the scripture says. What people, what places, what things has God given you a passion for? Take your faith with you there. If you have a passion for China, Let's find a way for you to take your faith there. If you have a passion for elementary school, whether it's the students uh, or the children or the staff or the faculty, let's find a way for you to take your faith there. If you have a passion for exercise at the gym, let's find a way to make your faith evident at your gym. Again, I'm not saying big, crazy, um, extraordinary things. Small little things. Small little things is how God has called us to tend to his great garden. The great garden is going to one day cover and fill the entire earth. Every people, every place, everything will be in and under the kingdom of heaven. So because of his great love for us, because what he has done for us, how he has brought us into his garden, let us be motivated to care for the small parts of his great garden that he's asked us and given to us. Let's pray. Father, Uh, You started the kingdom of heaven in such a small, insignificant way that that most of the world missed it. And and Father, if we were there, we would have missed it too. And you continue to grow your kingdom through small, ordinary means according to the world. And we so easily get caught up in the extraordinary. We so easily get caught up in the flashy, uh, crazy, more more exciting things um, that this world has to offer. We despise the small things. We don't want to be uh, just the little things or just the common things. We want, we want to be part of something great. And Father, we have so missed it when we think like that. Father, there is something great going on. There is a great garden that, that is being made here on earth. So Father, forgive us where we have missed it. Forgive us where we have made uh, too much of the world's standards and not enough of your standards and not enough about how you work in the small and in the ordinary and in the common. Father, would you make us a a people who do the small things, the small common things, so well that, that your city of Winter Haven 
is a beautiful flower bed in your great garden. And would you even go even past that, extend through winter heaven to this world? Will we just be, will we get to play a part? Will we be so excited that we get to be a part of what you are doing in your great garden? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, what, I, what I love about, uh, what's encouraging and exciting for me about this passage is that if, if God's calling us to be a part of his garden and just do the small, common things, that means we don't have to worry about the big things. It means that he's going to take care of the big things. He's going to take care of the extraordinary things. He's going to take care of and do the work of grabbing a hold of people's hearts and, and changing and going after them and, and changing and going after our world. So as we go, as we go and, and seek out to not do anything flashy, just to be present and, and, and awake and alive in this world and in, in the life path that God has placed you on. We go with his words over us. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. <laughs>